Welcome to Kindred Voices, brought to you by Pennsylvania Kim Connector. Kindred Voices is a podcast dedicated to helping kinship families throughout Pennsylvania. I'm your co-host, Tia Maria. And I'm your co-host, Andrea. Today, we would like to welcome Rebecca Salas. She is the Program Director of Family Matter. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you here because we love for our listeners to find out about new resource organizations. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then how you came to work for Family Matters? Sure. So I am a social worker by trade. I have my master's in social work and I started um, out of grad school working for, actually I was already working there before grad school, working for an organization called JAFBO, which is based in South Florida and provides all kinds of child welfare services to the community. And they have expanded over the years into different areas. And about 10 years ago, an expansion effort was started here in the local Philadelphia community to uh, reach people that are that are living in this community. We had some staff members that were from this area and we have a lot of donors that were living in this area too. So it seemed like a, a kind of natural progression. And about four years ago, I was given the opportunity to, to come up here from Florida to help oversee the expansion effort. So I've been with the organization as a whole for over 18 years. Oh, wow. And I've been up here in this role for going on four years. Um, And how are you liking uh, the cold weather and the snow? I'm not sure they could have taken me from Florida to fill it out. It's so funny because when I decided to move, you know, I was excited. Like I had been at a point where I felt like I needed, you know, a new challenge and and a change of scenery couldn't hurt. And everyone kept saying to me, you know, it's going to be cold there. And I was like, yeah, of course I know it's going to be cold here. And then the first winter hit and I was like, oh my goodness, I really didn't have a clue. Um, So it is still a challenge. Um, I haven't been outside in a few days, I admit, because I really struggle. Yes. But, um, but I also like, there is something about the winter and the snow that I find very beautiful and very peaceful. Yeah. And I have enjoyed the change of seasons. So even though it's cold, um, I think I'm getting better each year. And also summers in Florida are brutal and horrible. Yeah, that is true. So I don't miss that. Yeah. All right. So there's a little bit of a trade-off. Yes, definitely. Okay, great. So now what do you tell us? What exactly is Family Matters? What what do they do? So we are a social service organization and we provide free support services to families who are struggling with a variety of different challenges. So it could be that they're is a family member that's struggling with a mental health issue, addiction, um, sometimes complicated divorce or custody related issues, um, grandparents or other relatives raising their grandchildren. And the common theme that kind of um, overlaps with all of these families is that they have found themselves in an unexpected situation, transition, or, or have experienced trauma 
that is making them feel extremely overwhelmed and unsure of how, how to navigate that kind of challenge. So our role and our commitment is to help provide guidance, support, resources through those kinds of challenges so that families don't have to navigate them on their own. Okay. And so, you know, at PA Can Connector, we we also say we provide, you know, guidance and support and resources to families. So how, what's different about the way that you do it versus the way that we do it? So we have, um, and you guys do great and wonderful work. I want to say that first and very important for the community. We have social workers that provide very intensive and personalized support to families. So beyond just giving referrals or you know saying, oh, here's a resource that's helpful for you, we really help coordinate all of the family's needs and, and um, resources. So sometimes families get stuck with making phone calls, filling out paperwork, attending, um, meetings that might be confusing or overwhelming, such as an IEP meeting or a court hearing related to custody. So our social workers accompany families to those kinds of meetings. They will sit with them, albeit virtually now, but still, um, you know, through those phone calls, through the paperwork, and really kind of not only guide them, but hold their hands through it. And, you know, the other piece is just that kind of support on an, in an ongoing manner. So if, you know, sometimes a family will be in crisis at the beginning and they need, yes, they might need a bunch of referrals, but they really need someone to talk to as well. Someone to answer questions about different um, components or challenges that they're facing in our something that makes us unique is just our ongoing availability and kind of unlimited availability. So we like to say kind of whatever it takes mm-hmm. for however long it takes is, is what we will provide to our families. Okay. So like you said, really um, one of the differences would be you are providing more ongoing support, you know, when there's not COVID it's more, it could actually be face-to-face where we're on, we're support line. Um, usually it's more of like kind of a one-time thing. Sometimes people do call us back, but it isn't ongoing in the way that how you support um, families is. So how do people get referred to you or how do you get your cases, I guess? So a lot of different ways. Um, A lot of times it's through word of mouth. So we do a lot of outreach and networking in the community, kind of like what I'm doing with you now to to raise awareness and let people know that we're available. So we do those kinds of outreach meetings with local schools, other social service organizations, um, religious institutions. It could be attorneys, other therapists. So kind of, you know, any other professional that is working with children and families that might be a potential referral source. So we have um, quite a few organizations that refer to us pretty regularly. And every now and then we'll get a call from someone who said maybe they saw our flyer somewhere or heard about us through someone else. So it's, it's mostly just through getting the word 
out there. We don't do any any formal advertising. We do have social media, um, Facebook and Instagram. So we post information on there as well and our website. Now, do, do you ever get referrals from counties? Or no? We have, but not a lot. So we, we, ha- we have on occasion, but um, not very frequently. Okay. So I often like to paint, uh, you know, a picture for our listeners just to make things more real to them. So kind of give me an example of a family, like a situation they might be in and, and what they would do to, to reach you. Sure. So I'm thinking of a case now with a grandmother who was, um, took custody of, her grandchild because the parents um, both were suffering from addiction. And sadly, her son, who was the child's father, um, passed away from an overdose. And the mother was not well enough to care for him. So she took her grandchild in um, very lovingly and generously. And then you know, was having to deal with the trauma that the child had experienced, not only from the death, but from experiencing some pretty significant neglect during, um, you know, the early years of the child's life. So when she contacted us, I, I believe she had found out about us through her religious community, which happened to be Jewish. Um, And she received our contact information and said that she was just feeling very overwhelmed, really unsure of, you know, what services her grandchild needed, how to find them, how to manage the relationship with her daughter-in-law, how, you know, even things like disciplining the child, which, you know, was out of her scope as, as grandma and now she was responsible for. So what we, what we do with families is, is kind of come up with a very individualized plan Mm -hmm. that identifies the different needs and the different areas that they have to work on and then identify steps that, that they can take to, to meet those goals and we help, help them achieve them. So, you know, identifying those, helping identify those resources, talking about, um, a parenting plan, safety plans, and, and things like that. Okay. Um, so that's one example. And that's an example of a case that we've been working with, I think, going on two years because oh, wow. it's a very, um, you know, the child really experienced very significant trauma and has okay. needed a lot of extra support. Okay. And so she literally just called you up and said, hey, I saw, okay, great. Yeah. So what and that, of- sorry, that and that happens a lot where I think, um, you know, it's interesting is that a lot of times families wait until they're in crisis to make those mm-hmm. calls. So a lot of calls that we get are people that are really, really feeling as though they're in crisis. And, right. and sometimes it, it makes them feel stuck, I think, and yeah. they kind of don't know where to start. So we help them say, okay, well, let's start by doing this and we'll help you do this. And these are all the kinds of things that, that we think would be helpful to you, but let's tackle them together one at a time so that it's not so overwhelming. 
And so it seems like one of the one of the benefits in a way of coming to your organization is then the children aren't sort of quote in the system like it's still informal I guess or meaning that you know the county doesn't have custody of the children the grandparents or maybe even the parents still have custody but they're still getting that guidance and support that um, you know that sometimes formal families get. Yeah, that's typically the case. Every now and then we'll get a, a call from someone where there has been involvement from the county, but usually not. And, and one factor that I should mention is that in order for us to serve the child, we have to have consent from whoever the legal guardian is. Okay. So um, it is helpful when grandparents have legal custody or are working to obtain it, which is another process that we can assist with in terms of guidance and, and resources and support. Okay. Now, do you have any requirements or any fees for your organizations for the families? We don't have any fees. So we- That's nice. Um, free is good. Yes, free is always good. And we, I should say we're able to do that because we are lovingly supported by our community of, of donors and supporters who, um, you know, keep us afloat. So we're very, very lucky and very grateful for that. Um, our organization as a whole, you know, is support is a very grassroots kind of organization that that is supported by community members. So it's 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 unique in that model um, as well. But um, as far as criteria. One, the most important one is kind of what I mentioned before, is that whoever is seeking services has to be the legal guardian in order to sign just some basic consents, giving us permission to, you know, contact other providers on the child's behalf and, um, you know, get involved in that way. There does have to be a child living in the home. So, um, you know, every now and then we'll get calls from someone that maybe, you know, they're, they're thinking about getting involved. Um, but they haven't yet received custody. So that, um, that is one criteria. And that's, that's really kind of it. I mean, we're pretty broad and flexible because we want to be as helpful to as many families as possible. Um, and so for the most part, if someone reaches out, we find a way to help them. It might be something that is more specific and brief, or it could be a family that needs that kind of ongoing guidance and support on a long-term basis. Great. Um, but no sort of age requirements or anything for grandparents? No, no age requirements for the grandparent. So we've had grandparents that were, um, you know, younger on the younger side, and we've had grandparents that, that were much older. So it, that doesn't matter. We serve a wide geographic scope um, as well. And of course, now since we're providing virtual services, you know, we can reach even you know, more people geographically. But the majority of our cases are in the Southeast PA region. So Montgomery, Philadelphia, Bucks, and Delaware County. Okay. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you see for kinship families? I think one of the biggest challenges that we encounter is 
that transition in the dynamic and the role of the grandparent or kinship caregiver becoming the parent to the child. So that usually means a significant shift in dynamic where perhaps, you know, they were, would not have been doing things like discipline before, and then they have to enter that role. So that that's a big shift and um, challenge. And I think the other really difficult piece is the boundary setting. Um, if, the, if the parents are still involved, um, the grandparents' responsibility or the kinship caregiver's responsibility to, to set and enforce boundaries with the parent. Mm-hmm. So there are times that you know the parents are struggling and might not be stable or safe enough to perhaps have contact with the child, but it's difficult for a kinship provider who is also related to that parent and probably loves them and cares about them very deeply to say, I'm sorry, I don't think that you're safe enough today to see the child. And that becomes very complicated in terms of, you know, sending messages to the child about boundaries and about safety. And I think there's also a lot of guilt on behalf of the kinship caregiver. We see a lot of enabling kinds of behaviors where you know, the kinship caregiver wants to help and protect their child as well as the grandchild. So right. it's very complicated in that, in that regard and not an easy task for, you know, for kinship caregivers to take on. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to, to manage. So what are some of the things that you do to help them with those challenges, you know, help them with the boundary setting and, and, and transitioning into that new role? We talk a lot about, you know, really trying to focus on the child's needs and the best interest of the child. So sometimes that means coming up with a written safety plan or contract where we will, you know, try to spell out boundaries. So, you know, this might be what has to be in place in order for visitation to occur, for example, Um, whether that means some kind of assurance that the parent is, uh, is sober, you know, for a certain period of time, or is receiving treatment actively, that, you know, that they have appropriate housing perhaps set up if the child is going to go visit them. So, you know, kind of setting some guidelines that help the grandparent or kinship caregiver determine what would be a safe um, environment. Sometimes, um, you know, it might mean the grandparent continuing to be present during those visits to monitor things. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, kind of identifying, um, things that would, would make the, the, the contact and the boundary as safe as possible for the child. And sometimes kinship caregivers do really well with that. And sometimes they don't, to be honest. I mean, sometimes they really struggle and it's, it's really understandable right. um, because they're kind of caught in the middle, which is a tough position to be in. So we just, you know, try to do um, education surrounding enabling types of behaviors and and how those types of behaviors can, can be confusing for the child and can really be dangerous for the child in terms of emotional safety. Right. Yeah. 
So when you're working with the the kinship um, caregivers and, you know, I guess mostly the grandparents, what percentage would you say are looking to eventually get their grandchild back with the, the, the biological parents versus the ones who are like, no, nah, I think I'm going to have to raise the child. I feel like the large majority feels and knows that they're going to have to raise the child long-term, I would say. In, in, in my experience, the majority of the cases that, or the, the majority of the families that we work with where there is a, kin, a kinship caregiver, mm-hmm. it's largely because the parents are struggling with substance Okay. Not a hundred percent, but close to it. Yeah. So, you know, that typically involves, um, you know, a cycle of relapse, sometimes right. um, incarceration, um, maybe long-term treatment or, you know, residential types of treatment. And unfortunately, we've also seen families where the parent has lost their lost their fight with addiction um, and ends up passing away. So we've had a handful of cases like that. So I think a lot of times the grandparent is aware that perhaps the parent might not stabilize enough. Um, Yeah. So, and that's why these cases are tough because I think, you know, the grandparents have to also think about planning long-term. So what does that mean, you know, for, for an elderly um, person or a couple, if they're now, now taking on a child that needs, you know, 18 years or, or more worth of, of their support, mm-hmm. um, you know, what does that look like for them too? And that's another thing that we talk about a lot is, you know, long-term, what fees, you know, what is feasible for this grandparent in terms of a time frame, Right. Yeah. That, that is a tough one. You know, if you're a 70 year old grandparent and you get a two-year-old. Yeah. That's a, yeah. it's a hard decision. It really is a hard decision. So I, you know, we've also had families that, um, you know, have worked in partnership with each other where maybe the, the grandparents have the child during the week or, and like an aunt or uncle will take the child mm. on the weekend to give the grandparent break. So, right. um, you know, if the, if the child is fortunate enough to have that kind of extended um, family system, it is always helpful also. Yeah, that's true. Now, what are some successes that you've had with kinship families? I think, um, you know, long term, the success is always is for the child to to remain in the home and and for it to for it to work long term. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we had a case that um, started kind of similar. There tends to be some themes and some trends where the the mother was in a, a horrible car accident because she was driving intoxicated and um, the child was in the car and um, the state did get involved upon kind of discovering the accident, but the grandparents immediately stepped in and said that they would, that they would take the child so that um, he didn't have to go into foster care. Mm-hmm. So um, 
it was a very intense case in the beginning because, you know, of course, the the grandparents were worried about their child who, you know, had suffered a car accident and was really struggling from addiction, but they also had to take care of their of their grandson. So they were juggling all of that. And we worked with them really closely on setting up some of those boundaries that I talked about earlier, having a very specific plan in place for how and when um, appropriate and therapeutic contact with the mother would take place, making sure that she got the help that she needed so that she was healthy and safe. And the child is still with the grandparents. The mother is has been in and out of recovery, to be honest. So she's had periods of sobriety and stability, but also relapses. So, um, you know, which of course affects everyone again, but knowing that the child is safe and stable, I think is always the biggest success because, you know, I come from a child welfare background and I worked for a very long time in foster care and adoption and um, being with the same organization, as long as I have, you know, some of the children I worked with as babies are now adults, which, you know, makes me feel very old, but it's also been such an honor to see that. But by far, I think the, the, the worst predictor of long-term outcomes is the multiple moves. So when children are moved around a lot, even if they're very young, that is the worst indicator for long-term stability, which is really unfortunate. So um, I think the sooner that a child can get into a situation that can be long-term, the better. And not having to go back and forth or move around is always the best option right. for children. Yeah. Now, do you find that if the grandparents, you know, eventually adopt the children, do some of their challenges with the biological parents become lessened now that they are like legally the parents? Does do the dynamics Does that impact the dynamics at all? Honestly, I don't think so, because I think, you know, it, I think the, you know, the emotional kind of um, toll that the grandparent carries for having to set those boundaries, especially sometimes in an adoptive situation, because it's forever, Um, you know, then they really are legally responsible, but of course, emotionally responsible as well. I think it, it really can become tricky to basically have to say to the child's birth parent, you know, we're the parents now, and that means A, B, and C. And I think a lot of grandparents have a very hard time setting that boundary. Mm -hmm. And again, understandably so, I mean, it's their child. So I think, you know, there's always a, a piece of them that wants their child to be happy and healthy also. So it's hard to, to, for them to kind of, you know, implement some of those rules and boundaries. Okay. So, you know, working in, I'm sure everybody who works in this space, there are some things where you're like, man, I wish this could happen. I wish we could get this for the family. So when you think, you know, especially with the kinship families, what are some of the things that you wish were easily or more easily available to them to help them, you know, like you said, give the child the best chance of, you know, growing up in a loving home and, you know, and, and with minimal 
trauma. Yeah. Um, I think reaching out for help as, as early on as possible is really important. So I think a lot of times um, grandparents in particular are a little, might be a little bit slower to reach out because they really are hoping that their child is going to, you know, get better. So whether they're struggling with a mental health issue or addiction, I think a lot of times the they get stuck in that cycle of, you know, there might be a period where the child is stable and doing really well. And by the child, I mean the parent. Mm-hmm. Um, so the child of the grandparent, it's confusing, I know. But um, so I think sometimes that cycle goes on a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. And then it's like something really unfortunate has to happen to get the, the grandparents to reach out for support, whether that is, you know, God forbid, a car accident or someone getting arrested. Um, and then it's, you know, kind of working in a reactive way versus proactive. So I, I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, shame and stigma surrounding mental illness and addiction, which, you know, unfortunately is, is an issue in our society where people are, uncomfortable making a phone call and saying we are struggling with addiction in our family or my child you know has a mental health issue and I feel that my grandchild is unsafe because of it I think grandparents you know are protective by by nature and they want to do everything they can to to help and sometimes that means prolonging you know intervention so I, I would say I wish you know that there was more awareness about what's available. I wish people felt more comfortable coming forward and reaching out for help and that, you know, people felt safe speaking up about these kinds of things because the help is available. It's, but, you know, people have to ask for it. So, yeah, that's, I think that's the biggest thing. A lot of times, by the time we get involved, things are already quite messy. um, And that, you know, can be, hard to to navigate versus doing some prevention-based kinds of interventions. Yeah, I would say like on our side, the biggest, the the biggest challenge that they have, because it's, it's interesting kind of looking at the two sides of this, because our calls are usually calls for financial assistance, you know, um, and I guess it's just the nature of how we're, we're different and complementary, fortunately, because we're getting the almost like very uh, practical kind of needs. We, you know, we need food, we, I need to clothe them. So they're looking for financial assistance. And so for us, the, the biggest, especially the informal families, the biggest issue is that the financial assistance is just meager, Do you know? Yeah. I mean? they, because for them, really they're reliable, consistent, help is through um, public assistance, the child only grants. Um, that's not, a, a, that's just not a lot of money. And even if they get um, SNAP, you know, that's based on the amount that you're getting in cash is going to impact how much you get for the food, you know, so there are just all these complications that make it really challenging for them and and sometimes disheartening and then the other really big thing too is the cost of daycare where they're get depending on what their income is they're getting minimal assistance 
for that. So those are, you know, the challenges that we see and that, that there is help there, but it's often just not enough and it's forcing, you know, the families to be on the edge. Yeah. Financially. I, yeah. I mean, I think that's a huge factor and we come across that a lot too, because again, you know, these, I think a lot of times these situations are very sudden and unexpected. So maybe, you know, grandparents or, or aunt or uncle wasn't planning on, you know, having a daycare expense, certainly, and maybe they were approaching retirement and wanting to travel or, or do whatever else, you know, to enjoy their retirement. So we come across that a lot too. We, we do a lot of advocating um, for things like scholarships and um, grants and things like that to assist families um, with things like that. We ourselves are not a financial assistance organization. We have a little bit of room in our budget to, to help offset costs a tiny, tiny little bit, mm -hmm. but we do more of kind of, you know, calling maybe the, the, the daycare or the school or the camp and advocating for some kind of scholarship or tuition waiver um, for our clients, which, you know, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but we certainly right. try. And, you know, also for things like food assistance, clothing, we do get a good bit of um, clothing donated to us through our community. We do a significant drive for the holidays, for school supplies, and for summer camp um, supplies. So our families have access to anything that we collect through those measures. Um, so we, you know, we try to offset expenses that way as well. Um, but, but I agree, it's, it's a huge challenge. And I think, you know, I, for how common the issue is, I think um, I was researching the other day, and I think it was something like 9% of kids in Pennsylvania are residing with a kinship caregiver, which, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's significant. So there should, there should be more resources, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's what we're working on. Yes, exactly. So. One step at a time. But I, I also think just the awareness piece, I mean, just making whatever community you're a part of, whether it's a religious community or mm -hmm. your neighborhood or your school, or, you know, if you belong to any kind of group, talking about these things. Because a lot of times I will find that just by bringing it up, and sometimes in like the least likely of places, right. some that person will say, oh my goodness, I know someone in that situation. I had no idea that there was support available. And that's how a lot of our cases come to us. Like I might be talking about it with, you know, someone not even in the field that knows someone in that scenario. So I think again, just being comfortable talking about issues that people don't want to talk about helps tremendously 100 percent. yeah yeah that's true yeah um all right well uh now we're to our final question which is one okay. that we 
ask of everyone. And okay. we think this is important, you know, no matter who you are, to make sure that, um, especially in the role as a caregiver, that you're also taking care of yourself. So what are some of the things that you do for self-care? Again, you know, being a social worker in this position, we are under a lot of stress and sort of secondhand trauma. So what do you do to take care of yourself? Uh, well, I've been thinking about this a lot since, since the question came across my, my desk. Um, I'm also, I'm a new mom. I have a nine month old. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Oh, I didn't think Yes. So, um, and she was a preemie who came smack dab at like the height of the lockdown during the pandemic. Are you kidding? Oh April. No. So talk about unexpected things. Oh, so um, did your mother not even get to like come stay with you? Like moms? No, we had no help. Yeah. It was really, really challenging. So my self-care has definitely taken a, a little bit of a shift because, you know, being a mom, everything is about the baby. Right. Um, but I have been trying to go for walks um, when it's not too cold out. Mm-hmm. I did sign up for a virtual postpartum yoga series. Oh, so nice. I've been doing that, um, kind of like a rebuilding your core kind of a class. Right. I try to do that whenever possible. Um, those are the biggest things, you know, a lot of the things that I used to love for self-care, like, you know, like a nice pedicure and things like that have, have been tricky to do during COVID. Um, so a lot, it's sometimes just even a 10 minute walk I try to do once a day mm-hmm. and some yoga, um, a little bit of meditation here and there whenever I can. And I think the thing that I'm working on the most is just trying to, to slow down a little bit, just to remind myself you know, one thing at a time, everything is going to get done. Because the other day I was trying to do too many things and I end up spilling a bottle of milk that I worked very hard for. And I was very upset. And I, and it was just because I was really, really rushing. Right. So I, I think, you know, just like the, a mantra that I literally say to myself is like, just slow it down, take it yeah. down. A notch. Yeah. Yes. themselves in a position where they need help can definitely uh, reach out to you. I think you'll, you know, provide them with the um, warm assistance that they need. So how can people reach you? So um, you can go on our website, which is familymattersnetwork.org. And there's information on the website about um, how to contact us, or you can just call our office. And um, our office phone number is 610-525-1040. We have um, someone answering the phone during the days, obviously. And then we also have the ability to contact someone after hours if it's an emergency. So one of our soldiers is always on call and available. So if ever were to call, you get instructions how to reach someone in that moment if need be. Um, And again, all of our services are free, completely confidential. If you call us today, you will, we will get in contact 
with you today. So we don't have long wait lists or um, you know extensive process to to start receiving services. So it's pretty immediate. So I just you know again. It just takes one phone call to get that help and that support, and we're here, and we're really happy and 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 honored to to provide services to the community. Okay, again, thank you so much for coming. And thank welcome. you so much for having me. I'm so glad that we have been connected. It's been such a pleasure getting to see you so many times in the past few weeks. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Hey, Andrea, can you tell our listeners how to reach Ken Connector? Sure, Tia Maria. Kin Connector can be reached at 1-866-546-2111 or at our website, www.kinconnector.org. Thanks, Andrea. And we will see you guys next month.